Let's pray. (laughs) Father, we are so grateful that the King who sits at your right hand is so worthy of our adoration. And Lord, we pray as we've just sung, cause him to reign forever. And we pray that it would come soon. Come soon, Lord Jesus. And until you are pleased to cause that reign to be realized on earth as it is in heaven, Lord, we ask that you'd make us faithful, that you would sustain us by your word. We love you and commit ourselves to you in Christ's name. Amen. This past Tuesday, October the 31st, Uh, 2017 was the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. At least, it's the 500th anniversary of the day when Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church. And I am so profoundly thankful for the Protestant Reformation. I'm just going to tell you one reason that I'm thankful for the Reformation, and that is, welcome back, Paines, praise the Lord, hallelujah, that is, uh, praise God, uh, that The Reformation brought an end. Now everybody's looking at Calvin and Jacintha. Yeah, sorry, guys. Uh, Now they're looking again. (laughs) Sorry. The Protestant Reformation brought an end to the requirement that all uh, pastors be celibate. I am so grateful that there is no requirement. Amen. Everybody that's that's, uh, training for ministry, any children of pastors in the room? You guys would not exist if clerical celibacy was maintained, if, if it was all still Roman Catholicism. And my wife's not in the room, but I am so grateful for her. I am so thankful for marriage. And I'm thankful for Martin Luther. And the reason I'm talking to you about Martin Luther is because as we look this morning at Psalm 119, which I would invite you to open to, we're going to look at the, the central section of this massive chiasm that is Psalm 119. So if, if we're thinking in terms of the pyramid, we've gone up the front side, and we're now at the pinnacle of the pyramid of Psalm 119. And, and we're going to look this morning at verses 81 through 96. And in this passage, we see a man whose conscience is captive to the Word of God. And uh, that makes me think about Martin Luther. Um, after Luther had nailed these 95 theses to the door of the church, they were quickly printed. So the Reformation was largely aided by the, the Gutenberg printing press, which made it where the, the, the points of dispute that he had raised could be widely disseminated. So everybody's talking about what Luther has raised for discussion back in 1517. And eventually, uh, the government decided that they were going to have to deal with this. And so uh, word begins to circulate uh, that, that the emperor, the, the, the emperor, the holy Roman emperor, is going to summon Martin Luther to appear before this council, which provokes all kinds of questions because the Roman Catholic Church has already condemned him as a heretic. And so now you've got this interplay between the government and the, and the, the reigning church authority, and, and there's this um, dispute over whether the, the, the secular government has authority to decide the fate of somebody that the church, the church authority, has condemned. And um, frankly, the Roman Catholic Church sort of operated like the mafia. Uh, they were going to kill Martin Luther if they got the opportunity. And, um, 
And so there was a question about what Luther was going to do if he were summoned to appear before the emperor. And in response to that question, he wrote this. So I'm going to read to you from Roland Bainton's book, Here I Stand, A Life of Martin Luther, which if you have not read this book, it is, it is a magnificent story of Luther's life. It's a great account, a great biography. Luther wrote, You ask me what I shall do if I am called by the emperor. I will go even if I am too sick to stand on my feet. If Caesar calls me, God calls me. If violence is used against him, as well it may be, I commend my cause to God. He lives and reigns who saved the three youths from the fiery furnace of the king of Babylon, which this is why we read Daniel 3 earlier in the service, because those guys, their conscience was held captive to the word of God. The king said bow. The Lord says no idolatry. They refused to bow. Luther's referencing them. He says, he lives and reigns who saved the three youths from the fiery furnace of the king of Babylon. And if he will not save me, my head is worth nothing compared with Christ. This is no time to think of safety. I must take care that the gospel is not brought into contempt by our fear to confess and seal our teaching with our blood. So what he's saying is, if I'm to be made a martyr, I'll be made a martyr. But I'm going to go there and confess the faith. And then eventually, when the day came, what they did was they, they brought him before this council. They refer to it as the diet of worms. Uh, that's not talking about people eating worms or eating only worms or something like that. A diet is a council, and worms was the name of the city. And they lay out all of his books before him, and they say, these are your writings. Uh, do you stand by them, or do you repudiate them? And um, he asked for time to think about it. So he's all bold, you know, leading up. But then when the day comes, he asks for time. He, he wants time to think about this. And then he goes back and he, and he thinks it through. And um, he frames a response in which he's going to talk about his books. But eventually they, they say to him, you haven't really answered the question. And so he says, okay, I'm going to answer your question. He says, I'm, I'm quoting again, since then, your majesty talking to the emperor, and your lordships, the members of the council, desire a simple reply. I will answer without horns and without teeth. This is typical Martin Luther. He's so colorful and vivid. He says, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. This is the kind of, of position the psalmist is in when he arrives at verses 81 through 88. Uh, this is a psalmist who is opposed by wicked and insolent oppressors. Look at, look at verse 85 of Psalm 119. The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. What he's saying is they're out to get me. They're setting traps for me. Look at verse 95. He says, the wicked lie in wait to destroy me. So in these two sections, and again, I would just observe again that in in Psalm 119, you've got these eight-verse units. You've got 22 eight-verse units. And these eight-verse units, they break in half. 
And typically, the eight verse units come in pairs. So two eight verse sections will go together. So these two, 81 to 88 and 89 to 96, though these two go together. They're joined by the opposition of the wicked. They're also joined by the fact that the psalmist is going to say in verse 33, I have not forgotten your statutes. And then he says again, uh, down in verse 93, I will never forget your precepts. So the language of not forgetting uh, uh, links these two. And then also he affirms in both God's faithfulness. But there's a more profound thematic link between these two sections. In verses 81 through 88, the psalmist, in the first four verses, he's going to talk about the agony that he's in. And, and it's going to culminate in this question in verse 84, how long must your servant endure? So this agonizing difficulty and affliction that leads him to cry out, how long? And then in the next four verses, what he's going to do is he's going to detail what he needs to be saved from. So he's going to talk about the wicked. So if, if he's asking how long in verses 81 through 88... What he's affirming in verses 89 through 96 can be summarized in verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. And, and the way that comforts him, it assures him that God has spoken. And if God has determined what is right and wrong, well, these people that are wrongly persecuting him are definitely, completely, finally in the wrong. And whenever, how, how long am I going to have to endure? Well, whenever the Lord decides, judgment is certain against them. And he will certainly be vindicated. So there's a kind of almost a question and an answer that comes in verses 81 through 88. The question, how long? And then the answer, well, the word is forever fixed in the heavens. So however long it takes... God's cause is true. God's word can be trusted. And so, you know, we work up this pyramid where in, in the first two sections, what, what he seems to be saying is uh, God's word gives the true way to live. And then in the second uh, eight verse unit, he says, I want to live that way. And then he starts working through life and working through difficulty. We saw the last time we were together all the references to affliction. And it leads up to this question of how long at the top of the pyramid on one side and at the top of the pyramid on the other side, the answer is God's word is secure. God's word is firmly fixed. So let's look together at the psalmist's agony in verses 81 through, 80, 80, yeah, 81 through 84. He says here in verse 81, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. Don't miss the connection here between God's salvation and God's word. Why would the psalmist think that things are going to change? Because of what the Bible says. Why would the psalmist think that a day is going to come when the curses that the Lord has spoken over creation as a result of human sin are going to be lifted because of what the Bible says? The psalmist is longing for the salvation that God has promised in his word. My soul longs for your salvation. You could translate this, my soul is spent for your salvation. So it's like he's saying, I'm at the end of myself. I'm spent here, hoping in your word. 
Verse 82, he says it another way. My eyes long for your promise. Again, my eyes are spent for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? Notice the connection here between God's word, God's promise in verses 81 and 82, God's salvation in verse 81, and the comfort in verse 82. The comfort that he longs for is the promise of God. I think it's the comfort that that we read about in Isaiah when Isaiah talks about every tear being wiped away. The comfort that Isaiah talks about when he says the Lord is going to swallow up death forever and, 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 it, and the dead are going to be raised. The, the comfort that, that uh, various passages talk about, Daniel 9 talks about God making an end of transgression. No more sin, no more death. In a number of places in the Old Testament, it's spoken that, that violent men will trouble God's people no more. There'll be be no more need for weapons. There'll be no more need for locks on the doors. There'll be no more need for a police force. That's comfort. This is the comfort he's looking for. And then he says in verse 83, in the face of his enemies and and the way that he's being persecuted, he says, I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. Every time I've read this over this week, I've thought about the men's camp out and the way that we're gathered around this campfire, and if you're in the wrong place and the wind is blowing the wrong direction, you get smoke in your eyes. Smoke in your eyes, in your nostrils, and it makes you stink, and it burns, and it dries you out. And a wineskin, a wineskin needs to be leather that is supple and flexible, and the heat of the flame is going to dry that thing out, and the smoke that he's talking about is going to cause the wineskin to stink. So it's going to ruin the vitality of this wineskin. I have become, he says, like a wineskin in the smoke. Yet I have not forgotten your statutes. So he's hoping in God's promise, and he's saying also the promise pertains to the future. The statutes pertain to the way you need to live in expectation of the promise. I have not forgotten your statutes. I've been listening in recent days to uh, an account of uh, mafia activity in Providence, Rhode Island. And what's, what's uh, remarkable about this is there was a mayor uh, elected, and he was elected on the promise of rooting out corruption. The corruption was coming directly from organized crime. And this mayor is elected because he's promising that he's going to take care of this. And you know what happens. He gets, correct, he gets corrupted. Uh, mafia people come to him and they say, if you'll promise us these appointments after you're elected, we'll deliver to you this number of votes. They deliver the votes. He gets elected. He gives the appointments. It's like trying to to fight a battle to win a hill so that you can plant your flag at the top of the hill and all the way up you're denying everything that the flag stands for. That's, that's, That's that. This guy is saying, the psalmist is saying, I've not forgotten your statutes. I'm going to live in accordance with your word for which I hope. I'm hoping for a day when your word is going to be embraced by everybody, everybody. And I'm going to live in accordance with that word on the way. And then the question in verse 84, how long must your servant endure? Um, 
there's a more literal rendering of the way the Hebrew reads down in the footnote. You may notice a footnote after the word endure. And in the lower margin in the ESV, it says, how many are the days of, of your servant? I, I think he's, he's, it's like the psalmist is saying to the Lord, how long do you think I can hold out here? How long is this going to go on? According to what are the days of your servant? I, I don't know how much longer I can maintain this. I need you to move. Look at verse 84. When will you judge those who persecute me? When are you going to bring an end to this? As I was thinking about people whose consciences are captive to the word of God, I not only thought about Martin Luther and the way that he was persecuted and the way that he, he essentially said, look, this is what the Bible says. And if you're going to kill me for maintaining what the Bible says, so be it. But I'm going to maintain what the Bible says. I also thought about people in our own culture who are doing this. And um, uh, there's a man named Jack Phillips who owns a, a place called Masterpiece Cake Shop in Colorado. And um, you, can, you, could, you should Google this. If, if, you haven't, if you're not familiar with what's going on with Masterpiece, Masterpiece Cake Shop, you should uh, look this up and you should look at the, the way the cakes this man makes. I mean, I know we got some t talented uh, bakers in our congregation, some people that can do, but this guy is phenomenal. The, the artistry of what he produces is really remarkable. And um, um, he had some uh, two guys come in and, and want him to do a cake for a gay wedding. And, and he um, told them that he couldn't do that. And now they're suing him. And the case is going to, it's probably, it's before the Supreme Court. It's probably, it's being heard this fall. And, um, you know, if they can, if they can say that Jack Phillips has to uh, make a cake for um, a gay wedding, then they can also say that Jewish people have to make Nazi t-shirts. They have, to, Islamic people, uh, Muslim people, uh, have to make t-shirts that say Jesus is Lord on them. What, what they're saying is, you cannot live according to your conscience. And what Jack Phillips is saying is, I want to live in accordance with my conscience. My conscience won't allow me to do this because of what the Word of God teaches. And so I cannot do that in good conscience. And, and I would encourage you to pray for Jack Phillips and pray for Baronel Stutzman, a similar situation, and pray for a guy named, over in Lexington named Blaine Adamson. You, you can look these people up and read about their stories. Um, what happens with Jack Phillips is going to have massive implications in our society. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The psalmist is saying, God... These people are in the wrong, according to your word. When are you going to enforce your standards? In verses 85 through 88, he starts telling us about the standards. Verse 88, 85. The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. And then the ESV renders this, they do not live according to your law. Let's think about the pitfalls here. A pitfall, obviously, is, is it's like this guy's walking a path, and these insolent opponents, why are they insolent? They're insolent because they are, they are so committed to their cause that it doesn't stop them that they're opposing the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, and his Messiah and his kingdom in what they're pursuing. And they are so committed to that cause that they're saying, look, I know that the Bible says we shouldn't treat people this way, but we're just going to thumb our nose at the deity. And we're going we're to go after the establishment of our own kingdom on his, in his creation, in the creator's creation. And so then this guy's walking this path 
and they're digging pitfalls where this guy is unknowingly supposed to walk this way and fall into one of these snares. The insolent have dug pitfalls for me, he says. And then the second half of, of verse 85 is really, uh, I, if, if we were to translate this more directly, more literally, I think some of the humor of it, some of the irony of the punchy statement would come out. Uh, literally, uh, what he says is, which is not according to your Torah. <laughs> That's what he says. The insolent have dug pitfalls for me, which is not according to your Torah. You know, it's sort of one of these obvious comments that's really kind of funny the way it's delivered. The insolent have dug pitfalls for me, which obviously is not what your, your, your law teaches them to do. And then he says in verse 86, all your commandments are sure. And the word sure there is a word that means faithful. All your commandments are faithful. All of God's commandments are good for everybody concerned. All of God's commandments are true. They, they, don't, they don't help one group while hurting another group. As I'm listening to this, this podcast about the mafia, there's, I was telling Paul Guesting about this earlier, there's this one guy. It's amazing how people will defend these mafia characters. And there's this one guy that they keep playing this line, this quotation about, about the, the, the number one, you know, the, the mafia boss. And this one guy commenting on him says, he never hurt, and then he stops himself. He says, he never hurt, he helped more people than he hurt. You know, you know it's like he, he wants to say he never hurt anybody, but he, he, he realizes he can't say that. And so he has to come back and say, well, he helped more people than he hurt. Well, that's not the way it is with the Lord. The Lord's policies, the Lord's commandments, they're sure, they're faithful, they're good for everybody. All your commandments are sure. They, the insolent, the wicked, they persecute me with falsehood. Help me. Persecution against God's people is persecution that's based on falsehood. It's, it's wicked, it's unrighteous for them to go after God's people. And then the psalmist says here in verse 87, they have almost made an end of me on earth. And, and uh, literally what it says here is they've almost caused me to be spent on earth. So this word spent occurs in verse 81 and verse 82 and again in verse 87. They've almost caused me to be spent on earth. They've almost killed me, but I have not forsaken your precepts. That's the same thing that he had said a moment ago, isn't it? When he says in verse 83, I have not forgotten your statutes. I think what he's saying is something like this. In the midst of this persecution, in the midst of this, this difficulty, I'm holding on to integrity. I've not resorted to blaspheming you. I've not come to a place where I've directed my anger at you and said, if this is the way it's going to go, Lord, well, I'm going to go live like the wicked do. Or I'm going to resort to some sin. He's suffering. He, he's, he's saying they've almost made an end of me. I've become like a wineskin in the smoke. I'm not sure how much long I can, longer I can hang on. But, end of verse 87, I've not forgotten your precepts. I think what motivates this ultimately is what Paul talks about in Philippians 1. When he says, 
He who began a good work in you will complete it. And I think what's motivating this ultimately is the fact that the Word of God is compelling. The Word of God, when when somebody comes to understand the Bible and when the Holy Spirit gives them the ability to understand what the Bible is saying, people become gripped by the teaching of Scripture and it won't let them go. Even if the king says, bow before this statue that I've set up, they say, look, we can't do that. If they say to Martin Luther, deny your teaching, he says, look, my conscience is captive to the word of God. And and on and on we could go with, with examples like this. This is where the psalmist is. Verse 88, in your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. In your steadfast love, the steadfast love that is promised salvation, the steadfast love that says the wicked are going to be punished, the righteous are going to be vindicated, and those who have been faithful are going to be raised to live in a new heavens and new earth. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Notice again how the testimonies, this is, this is the psalmist talking about the Bible as God's testimony. The Bible here is referred to by the word testimonies, and the psalmist is saying, these are the testimonies of your mouth, Lord. So, so it's, it's very important for us to see statements like this because they, it affirms that the Bible comes from God, ultimately. The Bible reveals God to us. If you're here this morning and maybe you're not a believer in Jesus, what, what, what we want to say to you is we don't have anything to hide. There's not some dark closet where all the secrets are. I mean, I, I'm not saying Christians aren't sinners. I'm not saying there aren't things that, you know, all of us would rather you didn't know about us. But, but I'm happy to say, that, yeah, we're all sinners and we've all got things we'd rather you not know. But there aren't secrets about our religion. Come ask any question you've got about what Christianity teaches. Come ask any question you've got about what the Bible teaches. Come ask any question you've got about the God who inspired the Bible to whom we have devoted our lives. And what we're, what we're saying to you is we want to live in accordance with the way that he has revealed himself. And even better than that, he sent his son Jesus who lived that perfectly righteous life that we couldn't live. And he, he, he holds Jesus out as our example and says to us, live like he lived, but we didn't do that. And so he sent Jesus to the cross to pay the penalty for us. And Jesus died the death that we all deserve to die. And, and so what's happened in us is we've seen the glory of Christ. And as my, one of my teachers at Dallas Seminary said uh, of, of the Lord Christ, John Hanna, he said one time, when I saw the glory of that harbor, I sailed my bark into it and decided to park it forever. That, that's, that's what it is to come home to Christ. You, you see that there is no safer place than this. There's no better place to park your ship and you want to go to that harbor. That's what's happened for all of us who believe in Jesus. And we, we just want you to come into that harbor with us. We want you to come into this safe place with us where Christ has died for our sins and where he is our example. And, and so we would plead with you, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we'd love to talk with you about what it looks like to follow Jesus after the service. I'll be here, Matt will be here, Denny will be here, uh, the other elders will be here. A lot. Any, any member of this church would be thrilled to talk with, to you. So look to your right or your left, find somebody that, that's a member here, and talk to them about the gospel. They'll be thrilled. Uh, so 
81 through 88, question, how long? 89 through 96, answer, look at verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Why does he say this? He says this because as he's suffering like a wineskin in the smoke, he's tempted to think something like this. Maybe people can break God's commandments and get away with it. Maybe people can commit murder. Maybe people can engage in fraud. Maybe people can commit adultery and suffer no consequences. Maybe they can slander the righteous. Maybe they can attack God's king. Maybe they can seek to destroy God's kingdom and there be no ramifications for their actions. And here, at this point, he says, no, no, they can't get away with it because God's word is forever firmly fixed in the heavens. God's word has been established. So the standard is set. And it may look now like there's not going to be somebody to arise and uphold the standard, but he's confessing here, yes, a day will come when God himself will be true to his word. And then look at the connection between God's word and God's character in verse 90. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. The word is firmly fixed in the heavens because the faithfulness endures to all generations. So often, when, when people go to explain what we who are evangelicals believe about the Bible, they'll, they'll say something like this. We believe that in the Bible, God himself has spoken. And we believe that God himself is true. His character is faithful. He's reliable. And so he doesn't mislead people. He doesn't tell lies. And he doesn't allow untruths to enter into his communication. So you see the connection right here in Psalm 119, verses 89 and 90, between the word of God and the faithfulness of God. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. And then it's like the psalmist says, let me give you another example of the faithfulness of God. Look at his work in creation. You have established the earth and it stands fast. You want to see God's faithfulness? You want to see God's reliability? Look at the planet. The thing is immovable, right? Except for the way that God set it in motion and put it in orbit. God's faithfulness is on display in the created order. And that faithfulness should testify to us about the reliability of the Word of God. Verse 91, by your appointment they stand this day. The way the ESV has taken this, it sounds like the appointment is the appointment of creation. And by God's appointment, His, His judgment that this is the way that creation should be, creation stands this day. At the end of verse 91, for all things are your servants. Everything in existence serves the living God. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. If your law had not been my delight. How, how has the law delighted the psalmist? Well, I think by doing everything, by doing and being everything that the psalmist says about it here in Psalm 119. So the law is firmly fixed. And so he knows the standard's not going to change. God is not going to move the goal line on him. And he knows where the boundaries are. God is not going to change the sidelines. The game has to be played on the field. If your law had not been my delight, 
I would have perished in my affliction. If I had not believed and delighted in what your law reveals, if I hadn't believed that there's going to be a resurrection, then maybe he's saying I would have killed myself. Maybe he's saying I would have gone over to the wicked and gotten myself killed in their activities. Whatever the case, he's saying the affliction that I've, I've been through, I would have perished in the midst of it. I would not have kept the faith. And I would not have been kept alive by your teaching. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. These first four verses of this this unit, verses 89 through 96, uh, these first four verses, notice how they affirm how God's word is for all time. Uh, Verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Verse 90, your faithfulness endures to all generations. And then look at verse 91. By your appointment, they stand this day forever to all generations. And today, the word of God stands. And as a result of that, the psalmist is saying, it's my delight. It's my hope. It's what what keeps me alive in the midst of affliction. And then look at the response to this in verse 93. I will never forget your precepts. For by them you have given me life. Notice how he says in verse 88, In your steadfast love, give me life. And now he's saying in verse 93, By your word, by your precepts, you have given me life. When he says, give me life, I think he's talking about future resurrection life. When he says, you have given me life, I think he's saying something like, the resurrection of the age to come, that kind of life has been communicated to me, imparted to me by your word. And because of that, I can't forsake what the Bible teaches. I'm alive. I can't act like I'm dead. I I can see. I can't act like I'm blind. I can see that what they're saying is false. I can see that the way that they're going is not going to ultimately satisfy them. So I can't agree with them. Verse 94, I'm yours. Save me. I belong to you. You're the one that's going to have to save me. For I have sought your precepts. Verse 95, the wicked lie in wait to destroy me. But I consider your testimonies. So here are the wicked, you know, plotting their ways, digging their pitfalls, doing everything they can to kill uh, God's people. And, And his response is, I consider your testimonies. I meditate on the teaching of Scripture. And this leads him to say in verse 96, I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. It's like he's saying, everything has its limits except the Bible. And and your commandments, your word in the Scriptures is exceedingly broad. It's like he's saying, there is nothing more all-encompassing than the Bible. There's nothing more applicable than the Bible. There's nothing more true than the Bible. Nothing more right than the Bible. I've seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. There is no limit to the truth of God's Word. From this, I mean, this is why people that believe the Bible, what we believe about the Bible can be summarized by this little phrase. We believe the Bible to be totally true and trustworthy. Totally true and trustworthy. If you believe that the Bible is totally true and trustworthy, you know what you believe? You believe it doesn't have any errors. 
You, do, you believe it, it doesn't have anything in it that is going to lead you into sin or into God's displeasure. I mean, a, 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 a single word for this is you believe in inerrancy. That's what you believe. If you believe what the Bible claims about itself, you believe in inerrancy. I want to tell you as we conclude today about Thomas Cranmer, another man whose conscience was captive to the Word of God, another man who, who was persecuted and who believed that the Word of God was firmly fixed in the heavens. Uh, Cranmer lived from 1489 to 1556. And uh, Luther was born in 1483, so he would have been six years old when Thomas Cranmer was born. Calvin was born in 1509, so Cranmer was 20 when Calvin was born. Zwingli was born in 1484, so Zwingli was five when Cranmer was born. Cranmer was English, and um, uh, his life is a, is a fascinating story. I, I want to fast forward from the year of his birth, 1489, and sort of, you know, how he fits in relationship to the other reformers. Uh, I want to fast forward to the year of his death, 1556. Um, so that spring, what happened is he had been arrested in 1553. Okay, so three years earlier, he was arrested. Uh, if you're familiar with the English Reformation, um, after King Henry VIII died, uh, his son became the king, and Cranmer had a free hand, and he could basically uh, try to take the Church of England in a reformed direction, as in pursuing the Protestant Reformation. Well, then uh, King Edward died, and um, uh, Henry VIII's daughter, uh, prior to his uh, you know, departure from the Catholic Church, became queen, and she wanted everything to be Roman Catholic, and so she began to, pro to uh, persecute uh, the, the Protestants. As part of this, she arrested Thomas Cranmer in 1553, and they didn't just want to arrest him and burn him at the stake. They wanted to break him. So what they did was they brought in these talented Spanish scholars. They brought in Roman Catholic Spanish geniuses to debate with Cranmer and try to wear him down and, and bring him over to the Roman Catholic side. And um, so uh, his biographer... Uh, writes that in the spring of 1556, his consistent and careful preservation of his integrity over two and a half years of mental assault began to crumble. Uh, later, uh, this biographer will explain that, that um, in light of the ways that we have seen people subjected to uh, mental and emo emotional t torture, you know, in this century, we can better understand what they put Cranmer through. Uh, they just, they just um, kept coming after him. Uh, the biographer writes, he was under terrible emotional strain. He had always relied much on a small, intimate circle of trusted friends, and they had all been taken from him. And he was in frail health. Uh, so he finally concedes that if he can be shown a certain fact, a historical fact, um, that, that he'll, he'll consent to the authority of the pope. Well, they showed him the fact. He claimed that the manuscript in which they showed him had been corrupted. And, and that led to, uh, you know, all this uh, study in the, in the libraries. And, and finally, um, they have him trapped. Uh, he had been able to withstand this barrage from a team of the finest Spanish scholars, but now he was cornered. 
and he didn't feel like he could disprove the point they were trying to make. So by the end of January in 1556, he capitulated. Um, and then he drew back from the capitulation. But then in February, on, in February 26th, he signed a recantation. Um, he was physically, mentally, emotionally exhausted. And there are some indications from what we know of his life that he was suffering from a heart condition. Um, he acknowledged the Pope, transubstantiation, the seven sacraments, purgatory, and he repented of his previous belief. He heard the Mass, and, and in all he signed six recantations. And then came the day on March 21st when uh, they were going to burn him at the stake but before they burned him at the stake, they were first going to have him make this, this public statement about how he was on board with Roman Catholicism. The first thing they had to do was justify why they were going to you know, execute somebody who was repentant and now in agreement with them. So, so their scholar gives this speech, and then Cran Cranmer, um, on the way in, as he's being taken in to, um, to make his statement... He, he makes a, a comment to somebody who had been used against him. This is somebody that he thought was his friend, and then his friend had been used against him to try to turn him, to try to break him. And he says to that man, God will finish what he began. Which could be taken one of two ways, couldn't it? That guy probably heard, yeah, God is with the Roman Catholic Church, and he's going to finish that today. Cranmer meant, God began a good work in me, and he's going to carry it to completion. He was, when he stood up, he was supposed to explain the great thing which so troubled his conscience, the untrue books and writings that are contrary to the truth of God's word, which he wrote against the sacrament of the altar, the mass, after the death of Henry VIII. Instead, he denounced what he had written, contrary to the truth which I thought in my heart and for fear of death. And he repudiated all such bills and papers which he, which he signed since he was degraded. And all of a sudden, there's uproar in the church because gathered in that church where he was to make this statement were people that were for him as a Protestant and, and the Roman Catholics. And so some of them are raging and others are rejoicing. They drag him down, the, down from the pulpit. They're, they're, they're dragging him through the streets. And this lead, this lead Roman Catholic scholar from, from Spain named Villa Garcia is, is following him, and it's like he's in a daze. And he's repeating, to he's saying to Cranmer, as, as Cranmer's being hauled through the streets, he's saying to him, you didn't do it. You didn't do it. And Cranmer says, right, I didn't do it. And, and then Villa Garcia says, this very day you confessed to a priest. And Cranmer replies with contempt, what if that confession is no good? You've probably heard this story. Cranmer had shouted in the church, quote, For as much as my hand offended, writing contrary to my heart, my hand shall first be punished. And then at the stake, he stretched his right hand into the fire, and for as long as he could, he repeated the words, My unworthy right hand. This hand hath offended. The only explanation for this is Philippians 1.6 which he quoted on the day of his death. God who began a good work will bring it to completion. How does that happen? It happens because the word of God is firmly fixed in the heavens and the Holy Spirit so works in the minds of people that they're, they're gripped by the truth of the scriptures. Gripped in such a way 
that not even a team of the finest Spanish scholars can break a man so that he finally renounces what God's Word teaches. God gets the glory for martyrs because He is the one who has convinced them that His love is better than life. God is the one whose worth the deaths of the martyrs declares. He is the one who has satisfied our hearts so that we cannot deny Him. We are not able to do so because we don't want to do so because we want to be faithful to Him. We need this, not just because it's possible that some of us in this room might die as martyrs, but because all of us have to live in this world. And the only way to maintain faithfulness in, the, in this world is to have your heart so gripped by the Word of God that in it you find your delight, the light for your path, and the, the content for your hope, for your faith. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for your faithfulness. We praise you, Lord, that the psalmist can write, and this can be true, that your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Lord, we praise you that the Proverbs can save your word, that every one of your words proves true. Lord, we praise you that your word is like, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times so that no impurities remain in it. Lord, we praise you that Jesus could say of your word, the scripture cannot be broken. Lord, we praise you that he could say of your word that not one jot or tittle would pass away, but all would be fulfilled. So Lord, we ask that you would cause our hearts to be gripped by your word, and we pray that you would make us people who cling to it, whatever comes against us. Lord, we pray that in our moments of despair and affliction, when we feel like a wineskin in the smoke, we pray that you would cause your word to come to mind, that you would encourage our hearts by your promises in the scriptures. Lord, cause us to hear you saying to us, I will never leave you or forsake you. I, cause us to hear the words of Jesus, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And thereby we ask, Make it so that no one can snatch us out of your hand. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.